Let's take our Bibles this evening and go to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I would like to say thank you again to the church family for your prayers and your messages. We are very grateful that we have a church family that is in our corner praying for us. And um, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that I could come home. And I'm thankful for the ability to come home on such short notice. And um, I'm humbled to be standing before God's people tonight. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be back home and to see some very familiar faces and a lot of new faces, which means that the church is growing. And that's a blessing. Second Corinthians chapter number 12. Second Corinthians chapter number 12. Hello to dad, watching from the hospital. I'll try not to speak any heresy tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, verse number 1, the Bible says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory. Yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. This evening, for the next few moments, I'd like to preach on a message entitled, Is God Enough? Is God enough? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be in God's house. I thank you for Anchor Baptist Church, 22 years plus 
of faithfulness in the Burnaby area. I thank you for the many people who have gotten saved in this church. I just think back to the many anniversary Sundays, missions conferences, vacation Bible schools, and the many people who received a flyer in their mailbox through their mail slot, received a gospel track, something from the sky train, were encouraged by a friend or a family member to come to church, met somebody along the way, whatever the testimony may be. The hundreds of people that have come through the doors of Anchor Baptist Church, and their lives were changed and they've gone out wherever they are in this world, or those who have already been taken to heaven. We thank you for using this church. We thank you that you are still using this church. And I pray that even in difficult days, and even in challenging times, on a personal level, on a corporate level as a church, I pray that we would keep our eyes fastened on you. And that we would remember and take comfort that you are still seated down at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf. You still hold the whole world in your hands, and we thank you for that. I do pray that for the next few moments that you'd help me, that I would say only what your spirit would want me to say, that I would not be in the flesh, and that it would be an encouragement as this thought has been an encouragement to me. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. In chapter 11 and chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, we see that Paul is teaching the church of Corinth that serving God will not always be easy. In fact, he explains to the church in chapter 11 that he himself had already experienced many perils and sufferings. If you look at verse number 22, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. All of these things. Paul's telling the church of Corinth, hey, the Christian life, it's not going to be easy. And he explained all of these things in chapter 11 to hopefully relate himself better to the people at Corinth and to silence some of the critics that were evidently in the church. We know from reading in other parts of 2 Corinthians and even 1 Corinthians, we understand that the church at Corinth was known as the carnal church. They had a form of spirituality but it was a worldly form of spirituality. Alcoholism was rampant among church members. There was illicit relationships happening within the church. 
The church at Corinth had long lost their personal testimony within the city of Corinth. They were in the world and they were of the world. Jesus told his disciples in John 17, 16, actually he was talking to God in a prayer, and he said, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. As Christians, we are not to be of this world. We are in the world. We cannot do anything about that, right? We, we, are, we are residents. We, we are visitors passing through earth. We cannot change the fact that we live here. We have to work here. We study here. And there are influences and there are people that will try to get us knocked off the path. We are to be in this world, but not of it. It ought to be that there is a difference in my life as a Christian. It ought to be that someone from the world can look at you and they can see this one is not of this world. There is something different about this one. Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. How is our light tonight? Do we have a dim light? Are we watching the things of the world? Are we listening to the things of the world? Are we participating in worldly activities? How is our conversation? How is our speech in our workplace? Can people genuinely see this one is different? Or do we fall in line like everyone else? Do we take an opportunity to be a testimony, to be a witness, to pass out a gospel track? To do something for the cause of Christ. As John said in 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Worldliness is all around us. Sin and wickedness are just around the corner. We cannot change that. But we should be living more holy. Not to have our nose stick up in the, stuck up in the air. Not to have a holier-than-thou attitude, but we should be living a wholly separate life from that of the world's lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17, Paul told the church at Corinth, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. We should have clean speech. We shouldn't be listening to the world's music or the Christian form of the world's music. The big challenge that we are going through right now in Uganda is teaching biblical music, Christ-honoring music, teaching them about the music, not just the message, not just the words, but the music first, and that the devil likes using the music. He likes using the backbeat. He likes using that rhythm. He likes getting, in, getting into your home. He likes getting into your, your, your phones and your Spotify and your Amazon music. He likes getting into what your children are listening to, whether they be young children or teenagers. He just likes getting in with the music. You begin to think that because this song talks about Jesus and because this song talks about God and the Holy Spirit and it tends to have spiritual lyrics, but it has worldly music. And we let that into our homes. We bring that into our homes for our children to listen to. And then we wonder why our children turn out the way they turn out. 
I speak from personal testimony in my own life as a teenager. I listened to that music. There were several years that I went through in my life. And really, it was a spirit of rebellion. And it wasn't until I went to Bible college that I had to confess and had to recognize that I was not going the right direction. And looking back on it, hindsight is twenty twenty. but looking back on it, I would be willing to guarantee you it was because of the music I was listening to. And it was that Christian, Christian music. Because the world's sounds are deep in the CCM, contemporary Christian music. Why would we want to bring the world's music into our home? We should have clean speech. We should not want to have a watered-down gospel. We should want to have a higher standard, a stronger standard as a Christian, as a father in my own life. I should be setting the example for my four-year-old son now. Right now, I should be setting the standard. I should not be relying on my father's coattails. I should not be relying on my grandfather's, both of them, their coattails and what they believed and their relationship with God and what they were able to learn from the Bible in their own personal life. But many times what happens is, is we get stuck hanging on to someone else's belief and someone else's faith and someone else's personal Bible studies and we don't have our own. We've never taken what we've been taught and applied it in our life, studied it out in the Word of God to see, is this really what the Bible says or is this just what my pastor or is this just what my church believes? And I have found that getting away from home, it's not easy. To leave home, to leave father and mother, it makes it easier. Having a very beautiful wife, it makes it easier. The leaving and the cleaving makes it a little bit easier. It's not easy leaving home, but may I say that when you leave home, you get tested and you begin to see, do I really believe what the Bible says or I have been just believing what my dad says? And as a church member, it's important that you believe what the Bible says, not just what the pastor is saying, not just what the church says, but you personally have your own one-on-one -on -one time with God where you are getting a hold of the throne of grace. You are benefiting personally because we have that right as a Christian. We have that ability as a Christian. But it's evident that the church at Corinth had some problems with this. They had no testimony. They were in the world and they were of the world. And for a little bit of historical significance, Corinth was a very prosperous city. Corinth was the capital city of the Roman province called Achaia. The city in general had grown to love their wealth and their money and their prosperity. And within the church, there was division. One group of the church was loyal to one leader while the other group was loyal to the other leader. We know in 1 Corinthians... The first epistle that Paul wrote, the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, that even the people of the church were questioning the Apostle Paul's character and authority. In 1 Corinthians 5 to 6, Paul insisted that the church needed to exercise discipline for those committing immorality. Believers were taking other believers to court, and Paul told them, Settle your disagreements or problems among yourselves. Don't go public with these things, figure it out in, in, in the church. Because it was ruining and bringing a reproach to the name of Christ. 
Some people were creating confusion on if it was better to be married or if it was better to remain single. Better to be married. Uh, some of the church members were creating stumbling blocks for other believers. And Paul told the church members to be aware that their freedom to do something, not sin, but their freedom to do something might cause another brother or sister to stumble. Paul addressed the women's involvement in the church. He dealt with abuses and the taking of the Lord's Supper and the misuse of spiritual gifts. With all of these problems and confusion, Paul teaches that love should be the guiding principle. Charity in 1 Corinthians 13. Some of the believers were confused about the future resurrection of deceased believers. Some had no idea what grace giving was versus our obligatory tithe. False teachers had come behind Paul and started to convince the Corinthians that he was not a legitimate apostle or that they, the false teachers, were better than Paul. 2 Corinthians is basically a repeat of the first book, but Paul now has to defend his calling and expand on his previous instructions from the first epistle. We just read a moment ago the first 10 verses of chapter 12. And Paul is talking about himself and how he had had a vision from God about 14 years previous. And with doing some comparing and contrasting in Scripture, we can see that this would have taken place between his first visit to Jerusalem, following his conversion, and his arrival in Antioch. If you want to jot down these verses, Acts 9, 23 to 30, and Acts 11, 19 to 26, that's where we kind of ballpark where this vision would have taken place that he was talking about in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul had received this vision and he wasn't sure if he was in his body or out of his body when it took place. But we know that Paul was caught up to paradise and heard words that were not lawful or proper for a man to utter, as he said. And evidently, God allowed Paul to see and hear some of the splendor of heaven. In verse number 5, he says, Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. This one there in verse number five, of such an one, of such an one, that one is now referring to the vision that he had. Paul was rejoicing in what he had heard and what he saw. He was rejoicing in what he had experienced and seen in heaven. And God allowed Paul to see that. What an exciting thing. What an amazing thing to be able to see a little bit of heaven. The things of heaven should cause us to rejoice greatly. It should bring us great comfort in knowing that God has prepared an eternal home for those who have accepted the free gift of salvation. But of himself, Paul, his good deeds, his abilities, his accomplishments, the churches that he had started, the many people who had gotten saved, his converts, his disciples, all of these things. Oh, the great missionary Paul. No glory. No glory. Paul told the church at Corinth, and may I say that the Word of God is still living today in 2023, so he's also speaking to us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. He told the church that he was rejoicing in his infirmities. That doesn't make much sense. The definition of infirmity is the quality or state of being infirm, the condition of being feeble, frailty, a disease, a malady. 
a personal failing. Paul had this great experience of being able to see a special vision of heaven. He was given a special gift from God. He was given so much ability and so many opportunities to do great things for God. He had many years of service in the Lord's work. But he said that he would rather glory in his infirmities. Why? So the power of Christ could rest upon him. First of all, tonight I see Paul's acknowledgement. Paul's acknowledgement. In verse number 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Here's the acknowledgement. For when I am weak, then am I strong. In regards to the strength we need and the strength that is available to us as Christians, we must first begin by acknowledging that we do not have the strength necessary to live our lives to the fullest that God would have us to live. I personally, as Caleb Benjamin Turner, I do not have the strength on my own. I don't have the physical strength. I don't have the own personal spiritual strength. I don't have the emotional strength. I don't have the mental strength to be able to go through what's happening right now in our family. I don't have the strength to be able to be a missionary in Uganda. There is nothing that I have personally in my own abilities. Weak. Weakness. Many times we try to mask it. We try to cover it. We try to allow people to just see our front and just see everything's okay. Everything's great. May I say that the front can only last so long until we personally acknowledge that when I am weak, then I am strong. But to the world, that does not make sense. When I am weak, then am I strong. We wouldn't have so many 24-7 fitness centers if the world believed that. Huh? We wouldn't have so many muscle milk and protein shakes and carotene or whatever the stuff is that they insert in the drinks nowadays. We wouldn't have any of that if the world truly believed that when I am weak, then am I strong. But Paul was telling the church that in your weakness, your personal weakness, that is when the power of Christ has the opportunity to come into your life and be the perfect, complete strength for you. That is when, as a Christian, we are at our strongest, is when we are at our weakest personally. The church couldn't understand that. Paul recognized that when he was strong, he was actually weak. And when he was weak, that's when he was the strongest. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul told the church at Corinth in 1531 in 1 Corinthians, I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Personally acknowledging it. We struggle with pride. I think it's a man thing, but I think it's also a general thing. I don't think it's just men. I think we all have problems with pride. You know, the first, really the first sin in, in the universe, pride. Lucifer, I will be like the Most High. I will be exalted. And at the end of the day, that's really the sin with Adam and Eve was pride. They wanted to be like God. 
But in our pride, we struggle with acknowledging the fact that I can't do it on my own. And we get busy with life, we get busy with work, we get busy with education, we get busy with all of the things, and we have, we have, we have trials coming our way, we have things hitting us from all different directions, the devil likes to beat us up along the path. And if we've not acknowledged, if we've not had this acknowledgement like Paul had in 2 Corinthians 12, we'll continue down that journey thinking that we have it all together when in reality we don't. First, we need to acknowledge that I cannot do it on my own. And it should be that the first person we run to is not the pastor. When we have problems and we have difficulties and we have trials, the first person that we should, not, that we should run to is not the pastor. It's not your family. It's not your friends. It's not your wife, your husband. Your other distant family members. The first person that we should run to is Jesus Christ. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll be there ready to listen. He's wanting to listen to what? We have to tell him. But we think we have it all together. And I think I have it figured out. And we think we have, a, we have a read on life. You know, as a batter in baseball, he's trying to figure out what pitch the pitcher's going to throw next. And he's, he's standing in there. I'm right-handed, so i got to stand here. And he's got his stance, and he's looking at the pitcher. And when that arm comes over and the ball comes out, he's trying to see the rotation. He's trying to see the spin rate of the ball to figure out, is it a curved ball? Is it a fast ball? Is it a two-seam? Is it a slider? Is it a splitter? Is it a change-up? Is it a knuckleball? All of these things are going through his mind as a batter. As soon as he sees that, that split second, now he's got to figure out, okay, where's the ball going to go? And as a batter in baseball, you may think that you have a read on the pitcher, and then he begins to change the, the signs up with the catcher. He begins to change his routine. This time he's going to throw a fastball. This time he's going to throw a slider. And you just, as a batter, you have to be ready. And as a Christian going through life, both the devil and God will throw things into our path. It's not always going to be the same. The devil is trying to get us to fall into sin. He's trying to get us tripped up with temptations and, and wickedness. He's trying to get us defeated and feeling defeated. God is testing us to see, can this Christian handle more? Can this Christian go another step further in his life? Can he continue growing in grace? And just when we think we have a read, we take our eyes off of God, we stop reading our Bible, we stay out of church, we make church optional. As a parent, if, my, if I make church optional in my home, then my children, as they get older, it will become an inconvenience. And their children, it will now just become, it's just a holiday. We go to church for Christmas, we go to church for Easter, that's it. And their children, completely out. When church becomes an inconvenience, when the things of God become, when the things of God become optional, when my Bible reading becomes optional, when my prayer time becomes optional, my children see that, my son sees that, 
He sees the direction that daddy is going. He sees the direction that mommy is going. And it's being put inside his brain. And it's going to be there. And it's going to grow. And as he gets older, that's going to be the mentality. But I don't really need God. In my trials, I don't really need him. In my difficulties, I don't really need him. Paul had an acknowledgement. In verse 10, he began with therefore. Meaning verse 9 and verse 10, they, they're tied together. Verse 9 tells us where our strength comes from. And verse 10 tells us how we can get that strength. Paul was telling the church at Corinth, and he's telling us that when we are emptied of our own strength and wholly dependent upon the sufficient grace of Christ, we are in fact stronger than we ever will be. In the Christian life, when we serve others or minister to others, God says we are chief. The world would say that we are the least. In the Christian life, when we become a bondman to Christ, we have liberty. The world would say that we are slaves. In the Christian life, when we recognize our weakness and strength, that's when we are the strongest. The world would say that we are the weakest. Paul had to first acknowledge that he needed Christ for salvation first and foremost, but also for his everyday strength. Philippians 4.19, Paul told the church at Philippi, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Hebrews 4, 16, the writer says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help of time of need. David writes in Psalms 55, 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. We first have to acknowledge. I first have to acknowledge that in my own strength, I'm nothing. My flesh is weak. My flesh will fail. I will always lean more towards the world as my flesh. Because in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Is God enough for us? Is His grace really sufficient for us? What is God's grace? Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection... God's free gift of salvation is the grace that he gives to us and the benefits that come with being saved are a part of God's grace. The fellowship of the believers in a, in a, in a Bible-preaching church, that is a part of the benefits of God's grace. Receiving spiritual wisdom. You know, sometimes in those moments where you have to make a quick decision and you say that, that quick prayer, and then you find yourself making the right decision and you're like, where did that come from? I've been there a lot where you just think, man, like, how did that even happen? Well, I, I said that quick prayer, you know, right before I had to make that quick decision. There was the immediate, hey, I can't do this. You can't do it. Personally, you cannot do it. But with your power, God, with your ability, God, I'll rely on you to make the right decision. Paul had to acknowledge that he could not do it on his own. But secondly, I see Paul's attitude. Paul's attitude. Look at the second half of verse number 9, please. What, he's, what does he say in 2 Corinthians 12? Most gladly, <laughs> gladly, 
Therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure. Wow. In infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul's positive attitude shined forth in the midst of weakness. In the midst of these infirmities. Paul's attitude to being tired or being worn out, mistreated, persecuted, abused verbally was to glory and to take pleasure. Being shipwrecked and experiencing all the perils and being stoned and left for dead and having his own countrymen, his own brethren, cast him out of the city. And even in, verse, in chapter number 11, you can, you can read the account of when he was led over the wall in the basket. He said, I'm going to glory in those things. I'm going to take pleasure in those things that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What an attitude. It's not easy. I think we can all agree that. Having that type of a positive attitude is not an easy thing. No one is going to pretend that rejoicing in weakness is easy to do. But I find from Scripture here that this type of attitude is required if we are going to live for God the correct way. Paul did not pout. He did not complain. He didn't get angry. He didn't leave the church. He didn't turn to drugs or alcohol. He did not leave his family. He didn't betray his friends. He didn't quit. He kept going. Paul's attitude revealed his positive faith in God. His faith was not negative. You know, there's many Christians that I have come across in life that they have negative faith. That doesn't make much sense. They have negative faith. They are saved. They, they have access to the benefits found in the Word of God. They have access to all of God's benefits through grace. But they live a very negative life. Things are always not going the way that they should, and they always have something to say about it. There's always something negative happening. The economy and finances and life and work and children and all these things, there's always something negative about their faith. May it be that I am not a negative Christian. May it be that my faith, where I live, would be a positive impact in my community, in the Kamaiba Chiteso area of Kasese? May it be that me, personally, not just as a family, but me personally, that I'm a positive Christian. Even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of trials and tribulations, that I would be positive. Paul's attitude. Paul's acknowledgement. 2 Corinthians 2.1, Paul says, But I determined thus with myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness. I'd never noticed this before, but it's evident that previously when Paul came to Corinth, he didn't have a good attitude. Paul wasn't perfect. Paul didn't have all of his I's dotted and T's crossed like we think. You know, we, we put Bible characters on a pedestal like, oh, they just had this unbelievable ability and this, you know, oh, they couldn't make mistakes. They're perfect. Paul previously came to Corinth with a heavy attitude and a heavy spirit. And it's evident that it rubbed off on the church at Corinth that they had seen that and it, it had impacted the church. But Paul said, I determined 
that I would not come again to you in heaviness. In Acts 26, 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. I think myself happy. Paul was happy that he had been accused and that he was standing on trial. Paul had been falsely accused for the cause of Christ. He was suffering persecution and he was happy. Why do many Christians fail? It could be because of a bad attitude, a negative attitude, a defeated attitude. Daniel 6, 3, then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. An excellent spirit was in Daniel. If there was ever someone in the Bible that could have had a very negative attitude towards God and towards suffering, it would have been Daniel. Most likely watched his parents killed before him as a young boy, as a teenager, was taken to a foreign land, forced to learn a new culture, forced to learn a new language, was put in places where he would not have felt comfortable. It would have been a very uncomfortable experience. And he would have had plenty of excuses. We would have looked at it and said, Daniel, no problem. Have a bad attitude. But even the world, even the world looked at Daniel and saw there was an excellent spirit in him. Even the worldly culture of Babylon saw something's different about this Daniel. Just like all of these other Hebrew boys that came. And only four of them maintained that excellent spirit and had that good attitude. But they would have seen others. They would have seen other Hebrew boys that were trained right, were in church, were receiving the word of God. Had an opportunity to make choices to stay faithful to God. And they chose to go the other way. They chose to follow after the world and do the things of Babylon and live that sinful life. But there were four young men who decided we're going to take a stand. We're going to maintain what we were taught in the temple as boys growing up. We're going to maintain what our parents taught us and trained us in the house of God. Have that excellent spirit. Paul's attitude. Philippians 4.8, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. The devil wants us to be in the middle of a valley, in the middle of a difficulty, and only think about that valley, and only think about that cancer, and only think about that troubling circumstance, and only think about that challenging experience, and only think about what the problem is that we're in. He wants us to stay focused on the negative. He wants us to stay focused on, on the worst part. And if we get out of our Bible, we stop coming to church, we stop receiving the encouragement from Scripture, the devil will win. But lastly, I see Paul's affirmation. He had an acknowledgement, he had an attitude, but he also had an affirmation. What does that mean? It means that he affirmed. No, what does that mean? It means that he validated something. 
It means to confirm a previous statement as fact. For Paul, his life and his ministry affirmed everything he said. He acknowledged that his own strength was not sufficient. He needed God in every area of his life. The grace that God gave him was sufficient. Paul's attitude towards suffering and perils and distresses and physical inabilities revealed the truthfulness of what Paul was saying. His acknowledgement and his attitude validated his claims that God's grace was and is sufficient. And he tells a young pastor in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, as he's on his deathbed, getting ready to go to the chopping block in Rome, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Everything about Paul's life and what he had experienced, what he had lived through, what he had been tormented with, this thorn in the flesh that he, ha that he had, that he went to God three times asking for God, please remove this thorn. Please remove this thorn. Please remove this thorn. And God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. He didn't say, Paul, sure, let me remove the thorn. Let me remove this pain. Let me remove this difficulty. Let me remove this, this valley. No, no, no. My grace is sufficient. The fact that I came and died on the cross for you, I was buried, I rose again the third day, that is sufficient. The benefits that you have as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that is enough for you. The truth that is found in the Word of God, the promises that I can claim on a daily basis, that is sufficient for you. Everything about Paul's life was validated. It was confirmed. And a young pastor in Timothy, when he read that letter, Paul's writing, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Timothy's probably reading it. Yeah, he has. Because I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen and heard what he's gone through. I've seen the stripes on his back when he's come to my house. And I've seen the pain that he has suffered. I see that emotional pain of having his own family and friends betray him. His own countrymen that he grew up with. I've seen that in Paul's life. He has fought a good fight. He has kept the faith. Because Paul acknowledged at an area in his life that I can't do it. I'm the strongest when I'm the weakest. Because God's strength is made perfect or complete in my weakness. Paul had a positive attitude towards negative situations. Your attitude will be a testimony to others. There's a mentality in Uganda that nothing bad can happen to Mzungus, the white people. That it's just, wow. How, how, are you, how are you even having this problem? How are you even having this difficulty? How, how is your dad even able to get cancer? 
the attitude that you have, the attitude that I have when we go through challenges. And may I say as a time out, I know a lot of people in here have gone through a lot of challenges. May I say that in the 22 years of our church, some I have known of, some I have not known of because I didn't need to know about it. But as I've gotten older, I'm not a dummy. I see that people have struggled. And I see that people have gone through the valley of the shadow of death. You've gone through experiences where you felt like you were at the end. You couldn't take another step. God was there. You've had those moments where you were in the dark. At least it felt like you were in the dark. And you were inside. You were just where? What? You couldn't feel anything. You couldn't see anything. And then off in the distance there was light. It was scripture. It was an encouraging word from someone. What a testimony. For me. be able to look back on the years that I was here and even now and that there's so many people that have lived the testimony of my grace is sufficient for them. Maybe as a young boy I didn't always recognize that. I know for sure I didn't always recognize that. And as time has gone by I have now seen that God used many individuals in my upbringing to get me to this point in my life. I think of all the men and ladies who are even now in heaven today. We sat in here over in the Maple Room, the Hemlock Spruce Room. And um, so I thank you for being a testimony to me. And may I say this as we say time in as we finish. Don't give up on that young person. Don't give up on them. You keep praying for them. Maybe they're not a young person anymore. Maybe they are now an older person. Don't give up on them. Keep praying. Keep going before the throne of grace asking for God's mercy, and that God's grace would become so very real to them. May I say that they will at some point in their life, before Jesus comes back or Jesus takes them home if they are saved, they will have that come to Jesus moment where they think back on church, they think back on that faithful sir, that faithful ma'am, who were always in their place, the ones with the gray hair, the ones who are always consistent in the things of God, they will, they will think back. They will think back to mom and dad opening up their Bible. They'll think back to it. Don't give up on them. Keep praying for them. Keep going on their behalf to God. Is God enough for you? Is God enough for me?